Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. In each episode, we bring you new ideas and insights from some of the greatest business and thought leaders to help you think more deeply and lead more effectively so that you can be a great leader too. Here again is your host, best-selling author, speaker, and unconsultant, Bryce Hoffman. Hello, my guest today is Dr. David Landsman, OBE. David has a unique background, having been both a diplomat serving as the British ambassador to Albania and Greece and a senior business leader, most recently serving as executive director of Tata Limited, the Indian conglomerate's European subsidiary. He is currently working with a number of startups and trade associations and advises businesses and other organizations on their international stakeholder relationships. In addition, David is a visiting fellow at Cambridge Judge Business School. David, welcome to the show. It's uh, very good to be here, virtually. (laughs) Indeed. Safest way these days. So, David, you obviously have a very unique perspective in that you served as a diplomat and as a senior business executive. What can business executives learn from the art of diplomacy? Yeah, I suppose the first thing to think about a diplomat, and I'm thinking here, diplomats do lots of things, but I'm thinking about a diplomat who goes to a foreign country and works in an embassy. And when you're doing that, that's what you're doing. You're going to somebody else's country that you probably don't know anything like as well as you know your own. And you've suddenly got to try to understand what's going on. You're almost certainly more informed from about day two than most of your colleagues sitting back home at headquarters because you're there and, and they're not. But still, uh, you mustn't kid yourself that just because you're a little bit better informed that you uh, really know what's going on. So you've got to try and find out what's going on. You've got to try and add real value. I remember quite a long time ago, now it must be because it's before the age of the internet, there was a report done about the British Foreign Service, which, among other things, suggested you didn't really need much of a foreign service anymore. All you needed was, as they put it then, a copy of the Financial Times and a fax machine. So there we are. (laughs) It's not the internet. And so you've got to ask yourself, why is that not true? It clearly isn't true. But why is it not true? Now, you, Financial Times is a great distinguished newspaper with a long history, but you don't find everything you need to know if you're a government in London or, or DC or anywhere else about the country or about any country just from reading what the FT has chosen to put in. And however many documents you get sent to you uh, by a fax machine or, or you can read on the internet these days, it's not the same thing. So the question for the, for the diplomat, before they can hope to persuade, negotiate, convince or do anything else, is to try to uh, understand what's really going on. And that involves a lot of talking to people, involves a lot of listening to people. And I think crucially, it involves remembering whose side you're on, but being open to listening to the other view or the other views. Now, sometimes diplomats are accused of what certainly used to be called, maybe some people think it's a bit politically incorrect these days, but of going native, which means... You go to this uh, beautiful country, you enjoy it so much, you love the people, that you begin to be more of a cheerleader for them than you are for the country who sent you there and pays your salary. Well, I've always got to love the countries I've worked in, but I I think I always remembered which uh, country was paying my salary. And I I think this is really important, though, because there's no point in charging in and saying, well, um, we're always right 
we're the good guys, you're the bad guys, I know what I think, um, I know the answers. If you do that, you may as well sit back at home, read the Financial Times, you might learn something, and there's no point in going. What you've got to do is to listen, learn, try to understand, but remember which side you're on, and remember what your instructions are, what your objectives are, but listen. Because if you don't try to understand what's going on on the other side, you're not going to get very far. You're not going to be able to successfully persuade, negotiate, whatever. And I think there, that's, that, that would certainly be my first lesson, uh, which carries across very well to business. Because in business, you are very often... I mean, one of the things I remember learning early on in my time in business was that if you're in one company, you could find yourself competing against another company one day and partnering with them on another project the day after. So that's a bit like that's a bit like a lot of a diplomacy as well, because sometimes there's you know two European countries will be competing on trade, but they might be cooperating on some foreign policy issue, for example. So you do need to understand the position of your country. You might want to advise, recommend changes to it. You might want to do all sorts of things. You've got to know who is where, who's paying salary, but you've also got to uh, be able to listen and take in a broad range of views and synthesize them in some way, take advice, weigh up that advice. And these are things you you need to do in business. And it's that kind of recognition that you're in a foreign country. That's not usually very difficult. But it's that recognition that you're, uh, you know, the, other, the other side is a different country. It's a different territory. It's a different way of thinking. And if you don't try and get over that and understand on their terms, not on your terms, you can't use that information to do all the things that you're being paid to do. So there's two really interesting things that I hear there. It's such a great insight, two great insights that I see that you're sharing there. The first thing that I'm thinking about as I listen to you, David, is this idea of, of going to the place itself and seeing for yourself, that's Genshi Genbutsu, right? I mean, that's, that's, uh, you, you worked in the auto industry. Uh, so that's, that's Taichi Ono's, uh, you know, go and see philosophy that's such a central part of the Toyota production system that you can't, as a leader, understand the real problems that you're dealing with in your organization unless you put your boots on, get on a plane, go down to the factory floor, whatever it is and see for yourself that you can't just rely on your subordinates to tell you what's going on. I think that's, that's absolutely right, Bryce. Of course, you, you and I today are talking uh, across the ether virtually, but we have, of course, um, we have met in person uh, and yes. we do know each other. I remember when I was, uh, in fact, when I was a very junior diplomat sitting uh, in my uh, first year in the Foreign Office in London, responsible in some sense of, a limited sense of responsibility, I guess, for a couple of countries, relations with a couple of countries. And you you can do a lot sitting in London, pushing paper around, talking to people, reading telegrams, doing all the sorts of things you do. But the first time I actually went on a, on a visit to those countries, um, a business visit, in fact, they was, it was Spain and Portugal, so I'd been to both before as a tourist. But as a <clears throat> Uh, when I first went uh, uh, business, went into the ministries, talked to, to people, had lunch with journalists, did all the sorts of things you did. I came back thinking, I feel a lot more about what's going on. I know a lot more in a certain sense. Now, I'd have been mad to say that after a week in, in a country, I knew, knew all about it. But I could feel there was an incremental improvement in my understanding and an ability the next time I got a piece of paper to read of being able to, 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 to imagine who the person was that's being talked about. He told me, 
you know, minister told me this, that, or the other. Well, I imagine now where that minister is sitting. What life's like when that person goes out of the office? What do they see? What do they put? These things are all very important. To take that one stage further, one of the projects I'm working on at the moment is trying to understand the differences between working in business and working in the public sector, working in government. And I think the same thing applies there very much, two different countries. If you think of it like two different countries, I'm not accusing anybody of being, you know, being foreigners in some negative sense there at all. But being sure. two, two different countries, think about it like you're turning up in a different place. What do you do? And it's that same kind of feeling. And what I say to people is, imagine if you're going, if you're a businessman and you're going to a meeting with a minister, imagine to yourself, think about how you've got to that meeting. What kind of transport did you use? What were you doing beforehand? Who were you talking to beforehand? What kind of building were you in? Maybe you were at home these days, but normally speaking, what kind of an office were you in? Who were you talking to? Who was preparing you for that meeting? And when you've had that meeting, where do you go to when you come out? Who do you have to give an account to? Who do you, I've just been to see the minister and he or she said to me this, that and the other. What kind of person is that? Is that an investor? Is it a finance director? Is it your board? You do that and then you think about the same thing again from the point of view of the other person, that minister. Where do you think that minister's been? Does that minister come from some remote part of the country where their constituents are all quite, quite done, deprived, quite underprivileged, whatever? How's that affect them? When they go back after, where are they going to? Do you think they're likely to be going to Parliament or Congress or whatever? Are they going to go to a party meeting later on that day, do you suppose? Well, if they're going to be talking to you, you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, at one minute. And the next thing they're going to be doing is going to talk to their party activists somewhere. How do you think they're thinking about you? And I think this is, this is the same thing. So this is why, as I say, when I was a junior diplomat and I came to visit the country and you see where does the minister sit? What does that office look like? What does the country look like? Well, the people who are telling us, giving us their views on this and the other, how does life feel for them? That may not appear, I mean, going back to the business analogy, it may not appear uh, in the numbers that you're looking at, but how they view the numbers that they're looking at is going to be influenced by their personal experiences. If you can get inside those experiences to some extent, you're understanding the atmospherics of the deal you're trying to do or the relationship you're trying to, to build. It's so interesting. And I'm thinking as you share that, David, about the, the recently departed CEO of Ford Motor Company, Jim Hackett, the ex-CEO of Steelcase. One of, the, one of the things that I heard from a number of both Ford executives and Ford dealers during his ill-fated time as, as CEO, when he was really just making misstep after misstep at the company, was that, uh, for instance, he was told, you need to go out and see the dealers. The dealers want to see you. You know, when Alan Mulally was running Ford, he famously didn't just go visit the dealers. He sold cars in dealerships. He sat on the floor as a salesperson because he wanted to understand. He wanted to go and see, and he wanted to understand what their pain points were, what the challenges they were dealing with, and what their life was like. Hackett said, that's not my job as CEO to go, you know, get, get one of the Ford family members, get Edsel Ford to go and deal with dealers. He's got a good relationship with them. But the dealers, first of all, the dealers know that. The dealers felt that they were being snubbed. 
But second, he's not getting that information. He's not getting that information that's worth gold, quite literally, of being able to look at the world through this key stakeholder's eyes and, and see it from their perspective. So I think that that's so critical. You don't know what you don't know. You won't know it until you've seen it. And I think it's trying to get your mind around that. And the only way you can do it is by getting out there and getting the experience. Of course, when you're there, you've got to be open in the way you do it. And I think, again, having that kind of diplomat mindset, saying, look, I'm in a foreign country. I know I'm in a foreign country. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to see here. Let's see if I can understand it. Because I guess you could go into um, a Ford dealership and you go in and you try and you, you, you time the length of time it takes for somebody to, uh, to, to make a sale or whatever. That's probably not the way you should be approaching it. You should probably be looking to see how, wh- whether, the, uh, whether the, 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 the salesperson gets on well with the customer, how it works, what does the customer expect? Is it normal for them to sit down and have a cup of coffee or is it normal for them to do something else? Whatever, I don't know. I'm not an expert yeah. in selling for cars. But I think you should be try, try to be open-minded. Now, anthropologists, of course, do this as a... As a as a profession, but if you're not an anthropologist, um, and if it's if thinking like an anthropologist is quite difficult, well, perhaps thinking like a diplomat is another option. Is to think to yourself, this place I've come to, it might actually just be one of my branch offices, or it might be a showroom, or whatever it is. But I'll treat it like another country and see if I can understand what's going on here. Well, that's so interesting that you bring up anthropologists because I, I was thinking this is the second point that I was thinking about when I was listening to you to earlier, is um, the U.S. Army during the early days of the insurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan recognized the need to look at situations from the perspective of other stakeholders, of the civilian population, of local leaders, of local government officials. And they recognized the limitation of their own officers, you know, who were warfighters to do that. And so the first thing that they tried to do was create something called the human terrain system, which turned out to be a a bit of an ill-conceived and in the end didn't work very well plan, but the intent was good. And And the intent of the human terrain system, what the human terrain system involved was actually putting, embedding anthropologists in the field to deploy anthropologists with, you know, field grade officers at the local level. In, in these two countries and to have them help the, the military commander on the ground do what you were just saying. Stop and look at the situation from the perspective of the local mayor, the local imam, the people who live in, in this village and, and to adjust the plans to account for their pain points and, and, and not make things unintentionally worse for them because of ignorance of, of, of their situation. And the problem with it was there were several problems with it. One, you know, for security reasons, several of these anthropologists end up, ended up being armed, which uh, got several of them kicked out of the uh, professional organizations of anthropology in the United States. And you had issues with some military commanders were not terribly keen on having anthropologists tag along during patrols. But there was enough value in this that what the army did instead was to create a, a tool that became part of the red teaming toolkit, which was called four ways of seeing, which was a simple structured exercise to challenge commanders to say, right, who are the key stakeholders 
in the plan you're putting together. And then let's stop and go through a simple exercise and look at this situation through their glasses, put yourself in their shoes. And they found that to be tremendously helpful because simply by, by stopping and thinking, right, this looks like a good idea to us, but it probably isn't going to look like a good idea to them. How can we make this work for us and them? You can save yourself a world of hurt. And that's very similar to what you're talking about in terms of looking at things from the other person's perspective. I think it, I think it absolutely is. I think in that sense, diplomacy and anthropology can be quite similar. Now, that doesn't mean to say that uh, diplomats are professional anthropologists, and I know there's more to it than that. I'm a great admirer, incidentally, of Gillian Tett's works on on applying anthropology to business, because I think that that absolutely shows the, uh, the, the the connection and the and the relevance. But I think you'd you'd uh, no doubt agree with the the thought, which I think was in in in, in what you were saying, really, that you can't, or you shouldn't outsource the diplomacy or the anthropology to some kind of expert that you put in the corner and say, give me the advice on this. It needs to become mainstream and it needs to become part of what the leader is doing. They can't simply carry on as they were, but ask an anthropologist or, or maybe a diplomat to, to give them a bit of advice on this. It's part of what you should be doing when you go and visit the sale, the showroom, when you go and um, visit the, the office. Uh, you need to be able to think in this kind of way, be open. And I think one of the challenges in that, um, and I've seen this, I think, particularly uh, among some 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 of the the star business leaders I've known, is that you know, they've got where they've got to, or they think they've got where they've got to, by being uber-focused. They're focused on delivery, they're focused on the numbers, they're focused on the strategy that they've created and got the board to agree to. And focus is a great thing. I wouldn't suggest you 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 run a um, I don't know a heart clinic or a come to that a, a car factory without a good deal of focus. But on the other hand, if you want to see what's going on around you, keeping uh, focused on uh, the, the 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 numbers on the here and now on the on a very narrow strategy on your strategy rather than seeing what's going on with the other people around, that's the risk. I once came up with the, the slightly uh, flippant suggestion in, a, in an article of uh, instead of saying, don't, don't just sit there, do something, I said, don't just do something, sit there. Uh, by which I meant, and I did explain, I wasn't suggesting that idleness is, is the greatest thing for business success, but sometimes not just doing, but looking around and seeing what's going on and uh, trying to understand. What's going you know, the old one about strategy um, failing on first contact with the enemy? Well, if yes. you try and understand the enemy a bit more first, maybe your strategy will be uh, flexed in some way that it means it, it doesn't collapse on, on first contact. But it's the idea of, of, of not just thinking about what you want to do and, and what you want to achieve and how you want to achieve it, but what, what is the likely reaction when you throw the pebble into the pond with a view to achieving your, your, your outcome? Uh, how will it ripple off and who will it hit and who will throw it back at you or, or whatever? That's such an important concept, David. You know, I love that idea. Just pausing can be so powerful. One of the things that we do when we work with companies, one of the first questions that we ask when we're looking at a plan, a strategy, or a problem is, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And it's stunning to me how many times the senior executives that we're working with can't answer that question. Or more troubling, 
you know, I'll give you an example. My business partner, Marcus Dimbleby, was working with one of the big British banks on Canary Wharf uh, right before the pandemic started last year. He kicked off an exercise asking this. There were there were eight business unit leaders and function leaders in the room. And this was a, a strategy for a quarter of a million people worldwide. He said, first question, what is the problem you're trying to solve with this strategy? Don't answer. Everybody write it down in a single sentence on an index card and hand it to me. He got eight different answers. And that's really a big problem because if you have eight senior leaders who are each going to be communicating this strategy to their teams, cascading it down through a global organization, and each of these people is telling their teams something different about what this strategy is designed to do, what this plan is designed to accomplish, what the problem is, that they're trying to solve, you're going to have a a tremendous lack of alignment, but you're also probably going to, as a result of that lack of alignment, have have a lot of collisions on the highway towards uh, execution. And you see that all the time. And so, as you say, just taking the time to stop and think for a little bit and, and say, what are we really trying to do here? It sounds so simple, but it's so powerful. I think that's right. And it's, and it's very counter-cultural, I think, counterintuitive. In a society, just thinking about this actually a couple of hours ago, in which most of us, when when you get into a leadership position, you've succeeded at something because you've at least succeeded in persuading somebody to give you the job. You've succeeded in something and probably done that several times over your career. And you probably started doing it as a kid at school. And you probably started succeeding by being the one who put their hand up most often and answering the questions and showing some keenness and enthusiasm. And in some way, you've done that throughout your career. You've, you've done it by doing something, by demonstrating that you're doing something, which is great. You're, you're, not, likely to, you're not likely to succeed by doing nothing and by sitting at the back of the class um, you know, not paying attention. But just because being able to answer the questions, putting your hand up, showing enthusiasm is necessary, it's probably not sufficient, particularly when you become a leader. Uh, when understanding the broader context, making sure you know what you're doing before doing it, because probably at earlier stages in your career, that what you should be doing was given to you anyway. So it didn't, it, it made sense to get on and do it. But the further up you go, the more it's, it's your job to work out what to do, not just to do what's being given to you, at which stage simply rushing in and doing it uh, is not a terribly good idea. And I think too often we see, whether it's in um, business, but also in, 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 in politics, uh, the idea that um, you have to be doing something, you have to be acting, um, and we have to be activist, um, even if we're not quite sure what uh, it is uh, we're doing, and even if we're, we haven't really thought it through. And of course, I think uh, your yes minister has uh, has has reached, <laughs> has reached the US, hasn't it? And um, one of my favourite shows. Well, Sir Humphrey was um, uh, a very wise man. Of course, um, he was the one who came up with the idea that um, we need to do something. This is something. Therefore, we need to do it. Well, <laughs> at a certain level in your career, that's probably right because somebody tells you what what you need to do to 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 to, to be a good to be a good civil servant or indeed a good uh, executive is to do what is what we've decided needs to be done. And on the whole, questioning that ain't going to get you very far. You need to get on and you need to do it. But when you become the leader, it isn't really your job simply to do something. Your job is to think about the right thing to do and get by him for the right thing to do and make sure it is the right thing to do, not just rush off and do something. So I think it's, 
It's countercultural quite often, particularly perhaps in a Western, very focused society where focus is everything, uh, to think and stop and not just act and, um, and look around more broadly. But I think it's... Um, if you don't do that as a diplomat, you're going to come up. You're, well, it's not, not obvious what you're doing there. Well, I think this is exactly why Marshall Goldsmith's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, has been such a success over the years with senior leaders is because I think a lot of leaders <clears throat> recognize this. Um, whether they're, whether it's conscious recognition or just kind of an uneasiness in the gut, they recognize that there's a big difference between doing a really good job of coloring within the lines in your coloring book and painting a portrait. Yeah. They're not the same things and they're not even the same skill set. No. And, and that's the thing is, is when you, when you get to that point, many of the skills, many of the tools, many of the talents that you use to achieve that success are now no longer the ones that you need to be successful. And that's, that's a challenge. Speaking of changing gears like that, I want to ask you a question that's similar. What was the biggest surprise for you when you changed gears and went from being a diplomat to a business leader? That's interesting. I think it's almost easy to see the things which were similar. Okay. Um, But I think in terms of things that are, different i'll i'll think of a, a well let, let, let's start with the things that are similar that's actually interesting what what was similar well i think you know there's an awful lot that's similar people are people and i think one of the things that's both similar and different is that everybody's motivated by something and incentives matter the incentives can be very different in if you're if, if you're in sales the incentive is very clear it's a it, it's almost certainly a performance-based commission performance-based bonus and I do remember one stage in my career, uh, the first time I, I found myself working with salesmen, it took me a little while to realize why these really nice guys who were incredibly friendly and you could go and have a beer with and they were, they were great. When you were in the, in the office and you asked them for some help, they really weren't very keen to give you any help. And it took me a little while to realize, because if they'd been incredibly unpleasant people, I'd have just said, okay, well, these, 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 these aren't very nice guys. They just, they just don't want to be helpful. They don't like me. But they weren't. They were great guys. They were really nice. But then I found they really weren't going to be helpful. And I kind of, it took me a little while to realize, well, you know, they're doing the right thing. They're told, you need to do this. You need to deliver these numbers. You get your uh, bonus based on this. And they're rational, uh, rational actors. And everybody wants to know what the boss wants from them. And the best way of finding out what the boss wants from you is how he's going to reward you. And if the boss rewards you and gives you a bonus on the basis of sales, you know you better spend your time doing sales. And I found that a really interesting lesson because it, it kind of took, I took away from that. Because government's a little bit different in this. Sometimes government can be quite collaborative. Sometimes, of course, uh, personalities clash, and it isn't. But quite often it is. And I, and I took away from that, if you want people to collaborate, if you decide as an organization, as a leader, that it would actually be better if your sales teams collaborated or your, your sales and the marketing teams collaborated or sales helped uh, new product development teams to, to, to refine their products or whatever it might be. Uh, if you want that to happen, you've got to incentivize it. Because if you're incentivizing something else, if you're incentivizing uh, individual sales, that's what you'll get. And that, in a sense, is what you should get because uh, you're sending a signal and people are entitled to respond to that signal. In fact, they should respond to that signal. I remember 
um, when I uh, joined uh, Tata, uh, the uh, the Indian conglomerate, which has a long and strong and well deserved, I think, re- reputation for social responsibility in the broadest sense of the term, indeed, ethic- ethical business. But I was struck by the number of times the top leadership would talk about ethics and would talk about values and would talk about um, ethical conduct. And they, there'd be seminars run on ethical conduct and there'd be ethics officers in every, every business and so on. And at first I thought, well, okay, I get the point. I know they, they, they talk about ethics. There's a long tradition of ethics. What's all this about? Why do we need to hear quite so much about it. There's only so much you can say about ethics after all. It's a good thing, but there's only so much you can say about it. And, I, and again, I, I, I can conclude this was an important signal because if you, um, if you believe in um, ethical business and you think it's important that people should, should behave properly, if you believe in sexual responsibility, um, you can't say it once a year and, say, and, and talk about performance every other day of the year because people will reasonably enough pick up the signal from that, that what you're really interested in is in performance, and once a year for the annual report or whatever, you talk about ethics. So if you mean it, you, I mean, talking is not enough, again, necessary but sure. not sufficient. But nevertheless, talking about these things on a frequent basis is quite important, because if the bulk of your communication is on something else, why should people believe that ethics is really important to you? So I think this question of what is incentivized, what is talked about, what the boss thinks is important, is quite it, 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 it is is quite interesting. In fact, I remember, can't quite remember which one, but at one of the changes of government in the UK, I remember uh, talking to some colleagues um, beforehand and saying, "What matters to civil servants? Because frankly, the bonuses aren't pretty, pretty very large. Uh, what matters a lot is what ministers are interested in." So if we have a change in government, the ministers start talking about, let us say, the importance of promoting trade as a priority for diplomats. If they say that, if that's what most of their speeches are about, it won't take long for the the civil servants, for the diplomats to to recognise that that is what matters. If they speak about human rights as a determining factor for the trade arrangements, trade deals you want, and and, and, and so on, and they talk about that every week, that's what the priority is. So if you're a diplomat sitting somewhere and you hear about trade promotion every week, you'll recognize that that's where you should be spending your time. If you hear about human rights every week, you'll recognize that's what you should be spending your time doing. So it's very different culturally. And I guess this comes back to kind of differences here. It's, it's, it's much more straightforward in business. If you want something done, you pay a certain price for it. The crudest, most obvious one is in sales. Uh, you, you incentivize sales across business. Uh, you do that. In the public sector, where I think it's probably fair to say very few people work for their bonuses because they're, they're infinitesimally small in most cases, you have to. You, there are other ways. Obviously, there's promotions and there's all those internal rewards and so on. But there, there are other sub, more subtle ways of indicating what matters to the boss, and that's an important way of focusing people's attention on on what they should be focused on. So I think that's one area where I think there's. Uh, no, there are similarities and differences. We're all humans. We all need incentives. We all need encouraging and so on. But how you do it and what the outcomes of that are can be quite different. Well, it's so interesting because both of these approaches, the, the, the clear messaging and the incentives, work and, and are valuable. And it, what's interesting to me as I listen to you share these stories is that my mentor, Alan Mullally, when he ran Ford, did both of these things simultaneously. 
So I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. A few months after he took over as CEO in 2006, he, he launched his strategy to save Ford. And it was a four-point strategy. Build cars and trucks that people want in value, restructure the company to operate profitably regardless of the demand or model mix, work together effectively as one team and finance the plan. That was his little strategy, four points. And every single time he spoke, he kicked off with those four points. Every press conference, he started with those four points. Every internal meeting, he started without, off with those four points. Every, every PowerPoint presentation, up came those four points. He had them printed out and distributed on cards to every employee. They printed them on the back of their electronic ID tags. And in spring of 2006 at the New York Auto Show, it's a tradition that the because it's in New York, that one CEO from one of the global car makers gives a, a presentation to the financial community on Wall Street. And because he was the new CEO of Ford to that spring of 2007, he was the, the speaker. And I went and attended as a journalist at the time, the conference and listened to his speech. And we had already started to, to develop a relationship. And so I, I had an interview with him a few weeks later and he started off by saying, hey, what did you think of my speech in New York? And I said, well, I thought it was good. He said, well, you know, all the, all the guys on Wall Street, what did they think of it? And as I said, we had already started to become a little bit friends. And so I said, well, do you, do you want to know the truth? And he said, yeah, of course I want to know the truth. I wouldn't ask you if I didn't want to know the truth. I said, well, they hated it. He said, they hated it. Why? I said, because you said the exact same four things that you've been saying since last fall. Everybody's yeah. heard it before. Yeah. And he said, well, what do they want me to say? I said, well, they want you to say something new. You've been, you know, you've been saying this for almost six months now. And he looked at me like I just said the stupidest thing in the world. And he said, but Bryce, we haven't achieved those four points yet. So why would I say anything else? <laughs> so, so on the one hand, he's doing what you, what you advocated in terms of clearly communicating, not just to the employees, but to everyone what the plan is. And it turned out to be so powerful that he did that. But then he also was very clever he and his team were very clever. It wasn't just his idea in terms of using incentives in an even more creative way than they had been. So one of the problems that he identified when he took over is Ford was rated the worst automaker in the world to deal with by suppliers. There's an annual supplier survey, as you probably know, and, and mm -hmm. Ford always scored dead last. And part of the reason he realized is because every supplier relationship or his head of, head of purchasing realized every supplier relationship you had two people involved in. You had an engineer whose job it was to make sure that the parts that the company was getting were fit for purpose. And you had a purchasing agent whose job it was to make sure that you're getting them from the lowest cost possible. These people were fundamentally at war with each other, even though they worked for the same company. The purchasing person was incentivized, was rewarded by how much they got cost down. The engineer was rewarded by how much they improved quality. And so they're literally fighting against each other in the negotiations with the supplier. So easy peasy, they, they restructured the incentive program so that now the purchasing agent, half of his salary is dependent on price, but the other half of his bonus, sorry, bonus is dependent on quality metrics. And similarly, the engineer, half of her bonus is dependent on price and half of her bonus is dependent on quality. That worked so well that then they started bringing in designers, manufacturing people and tying their bonuses together so that designers weren't designing the vehicle that made it hard to find 
the right parts for, that they weren't designing the vehicles, so they were hard to build. So everyone was incentivized to work together as a team. And then he extended that to the top of the house so that instead of the, the C-suiters getting their bonuses entirely based on the performance of their division or their function, it was on the performance of the company as a whole. I think that's really interesting. And I think it, it, it comes back to what I think is the sort of simplest, most powerful question to ask in most circumstances. What does success look like? You may completely have misunderstood what somebody else thinks success is. And this is true, frankly, whether you're today uh, thinking about um, Afghanistan or uh, you're thinking about a business situation. What does success look like um, for the other person, um, for your team? Uh, and as you say, they don't. All, success is not always the same thing for everybody. And then, if you know what success has looked like, you've decided what success is, is looking like for you. How do you, in a business environment, incentivize that? Absolutely. Because sending the wrong signal is very easy. Going back to my sort of ethics example, if you talk, if, if ethics is what you really care about, but you're only incentivizing sales, what you'll get is sales. And um, you probably will, if, if that's all you incentivize, you probably will get sales without much interest in ethics because incentives send an incredibly powerful signal. They should. It's what they're there for. But I think what, it, what success looks like is a really interesting question. And it's, I think, the, I think one of, the, one of the, the lessons, I think, for, in diplomacy is that if we know, we may know what we think is in somebody's interest, I may think I know what is in your interest, and I'm horrified when you don't do what I think is in your interest. <laughs> and I may be pushing you as hard as I can to do what I think you should be doing, a bit like a parent who tells a child, you know, you should be doing this, it's for your own good, you don't want to eat those greens, you don't want to do that, that in homework, whatever, but it's in your own good. I may know that. But if I don't, uh, assuming you're not a kid, if I, if I don't actually think hard and try and work out what you think is in your own interest... I may want to try and persuade you to do something different. I may want to persuade you that that, that, that bad behavior is ultimately going to get you into trouble and is going to, is going to cause a, a problem, I mean, a diplomatic problem, whatever it might be. But if I, um, if I haven't thought through and I simply think, I mean, one of my diplomatic lessons is always um, don't assume the other guy is mad or bad until uh, you've, you, you've exhausted all the other options. You may have exhausted them. You may come back and say, I mean, we can all think of a few, a few leaders in history who probably fit both of those categories, or at least one of them. Yes. And that's fine. But what you actually need to do, even then, even then it is useful to go through this exercise. Because if you ask yourself, well, what are they trying to achieve? Are they completely irrational? If they are completely mad, literally uh, you know, have, a, have a mental condition, which means they don't act rationally, well, okay, that's, you've worked that one through. You've satisfied yourself that that wasn't just a prejudice of yours, and then you can, you can act on it. You can, you, you can defend yourself from, from complete irrationality and madness. And that's that not impossible. But um, you shouldn't start there because um, that's, that, that, that's probably misleading. They may be bad. But what is it they're trying to achieve? Maybe they're trying to achieve a bad thing, but they're trying to achieve it in a very rational way. And you need to understand what that is. And to do that first, because your government, if you're a diplomat, your government will have a line that uh, a particular problem, we don't, we want to do X, they want to do Y. This leader is a bad, is a dictator, is autocratic, is, 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 is dangerous, is, is whatever. That's fine. That's a, it may be true. It may be a perfectly fair judgment. It's certainly a perfectly valid public line for a government to use. 
But you shouldn't just believe the line without thinking behind it. It's a perfectly rational approach to take a position and to stick to your position. And we're on this side, they're on that side. We're fighting a war. We're, we're, we're trying to stop somebody doing something. Yeah, you have that line. And, and you, don't, you, know, you will have gone native, as they say, as an ambassador. If you get up and say, well, I don't believe what my government's saying here. I think you've probably got a point. No, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. Any more than if you're trying to uh, sell Coca-Cola, you wouldn't get up and say, well, actually, I think Pepsi might taste better. Um, you're not going to do that. Well, if you are, I mean, I guess, if you are in the situation of, of, of selling a drink or selling a car or selling something else, you should, you, know, you should listen. If people are saying, well, actually, this brand of car is better than yours. You're, of course you're not going to get up and say, well, I agree, it probably is better than ours, actually. Ours is not as good as it should be. Um, but you should listen to that, and you make it with it. Well, actually, we can hear they're all saying that it um, doesn't drive as well as that, as the competition. Should we be doing something about that? There's something dishonest, I think, or inconsistent with trying to, to sell your product, sell your policy, sell your government's position, but listening at the same time to what you can learn about how you might need to adapt your position or at least sell your position in a different way to respond to what's going on. Because if I simply accuse you of being bad, that's not going to persuade you to do something differently. I might be able to persuade you to do something differently if I understand what success looks like for you and present you with a, an alternative route to success or an alternative vision of the world which somehow moves you in the right direction. Now, if you really are mad... I'm bad, you probably won't be persuaded. But I'd have been through the exercise, and I'm then still probably in a better position to defend my interests from you, mad and bad man that you are, if uh, I've been through that exercise and I've looked at what success looks like for you. So I think the absolutely important for a diplomat to stick to the country's public line, absolutely fatal to believe in it unquestioningly, and close your mind to what might actually be going on. Oh, that's brilliant, David. It's excellent advice. David, it's, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. How can people learn more about you and your work? There's a bit of it that's been, that I've, I've written here and there in articles, uh, which you can, you can pick up. Uh, we'll put uh, some links to those in the, the show we'll, notes. We can provide you some links to, to, to those. As I say, I'm working at the moment on a, uh, on a, on a plan which I hope will involve helping executives understand what's really going on in that foreign country called government and helping uh, civil servants understand what's in that uh, foreign country called business. Because I think uh, thinking about some foreign countries and thinking about what a nice time you can have when you go and visit one, but how you can learn lots of interesting things at the same time, I hope is an enticing prospect. Excellent. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today, David. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Bryce. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. To subscribe to Bryce's free newsletter, visit his website, brycehoffman.com. And don't forget to follow Bryce on social media. You can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Bryce Hoffman, all one word. That's B-R-Y-C-E-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And to learn more about Bryce's company, Red Team Thinking, visit us at redteamthinking.com. <laughs>